0: welcome to the sports medicine podcast hosted by dr andrew dold orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist each
1: episode will be interviewing an expert in their respective field and exploring a variety of topics related to sports medicine
2: Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the sports medicine podcast. We're back for part two today uh, With Aaron and Kayla looking into concussions in sport Uh, We're going to focus specifically on the management of concussions in this episode looking into things like vestibular physical therapy uh, And the modalities we use today to treat a concussion Uh, It's amazing to see how far we've come uh, In not a short period of time and I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about that in the upcoming years We've been getting a little bit of feedback about, uh, some of the things to do with slap repairs or the management of slap pathology in throwers. Uh, this was discussed two episodes ago. I think it was episode four, uh, with Dr. Andrews and Dr. Wilk. What you have to keep in mind is that a slap tear in someone who throws a ball for a living is managed a lot differently than your average person who has a, has slap pathology, um, We have a lot of good ways of dealing with slap tears in regular people. Uh, A biceps tenotomy, tenodesis, or even a slap repair is a great operation for the right patient. Uh, And these patients have excellent outcomes. When we talk about throwers, they're in a a different category. And I think if you want to, if you, this is the person who is trying to throw the ball for a living or throw the ball at 90 miles an hour, Uh, it's these patients that we haven't really figured out what the best way is to deal with a slap tear, and specifically, if if you wanted to even go a step further, how to deal with a slap tear in a young thrower. We just aren't quite there yet. So please keep that in mind, it's not like we don't know how to deal with with a slap tear in a regular person. We have great operations for this, and these patients do very well. Anyways, that's it for me. Uh, please, if you have feedback for the show, uh, send us an email. The email is thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on uh, social media. If you're interested in being a guest in the show or sponsoring an episode, please reach out, uh, and we can talk to you more about, about setting this up. Uh, hope you enjoy this episode, uh, part two with Kayla and Aaron on concussions in sport thanks you guys hey guys welcome to another episode here i've got Aaron reynolds and kayla covert here for um episode two of our concussion series welcome guys thank you thanks for coming back that was if you haven't listened to part one you should probably go back and listen to part one first which talks basically generally about uh uh, concussions uh what a concussion is the epidemiology of concussions symptoms to look for and all sorts of stuff like that that just gives you a a good background into what a concussion is and what aaron and kayla do here so just give us a quick 10 second intro to yourselves to for to catch everyone up
1: so i'm the clinical i'm aaron reynolds i'm the clinical director of the baylor scott and white sports concussion program at the star here in frisco texas i'm a clinical sports neuropsychologist
0: and my name is kayla Cover. i'm a vestibular physical therapist I just moved down here about a month and a half ago and set up shop with Aaron.
2: Good. So we have been talking about, we talked about one example, which wasn't really typical in terms of concussions and how it all plays out for you guys. But let's talk about this. And I'm going to say standard and you're going to tell me, well, there's no standard. Uh, Let's talk about what is more a typical type patient that comes in. Maybe they've been concussed. the previous Friday night, they come to see you on on Monday morning, and now you're we're talking about treatment of concussions now, and this return to play protocol, and then also this return to learn uh, protocol as well. So take us through that.
1: So most of the time when I see them in clinic, they're having some symptoms. Um, if they haven't been having symptoms, then they take an impact test, and then they're ha- definitely having symptoms. Um, so the first week, you know, when I'm setting someone up to leave my office and go back out into the world, the biggest emphasis for me is keeping them on a very normal regulated schedule so you know like you said we used to say go home and, and sleep for two weeks or you know I get some referrals where the kids have been told go home and you can't go to school until your headache goes away well that that could be a long time right so we want to give them the time the initial time to rest so 24 to 48 hours where I want them to be very low-key they can take naps if they need to but really keep it quiet And then after that, it's all about getting back into a normal schedule. So there's five behavioral pieces that I really emphasize for them to follow. Um, The first is having regulated sleep and minimizing naps to no longer than 20 or 30 minutes. So we don't want them to hit hit their deep sleep cycles during the day. Um, Having adequate nutrition. And by nutrition, I really just mean caloric intake. So a lot of these kids lose their appetite, Um, making sure they're eating, making sure they're hydrating. And I give them goals to hit for hydration. Um, making sure they're moving. So this is this whole idea of active recovery, this is really what we bring to the table here. Um, a, lot of, a lot of kids are afraid to, to move and to exercise because they're having symptoms. And when you take an athlete who's used to being physically a- active every single day and then tell them that they can't move, that creates another whole host of problems. But you have to give them very specific directions on what they can and can't do. So go take a walk for 30 minutes or ride the stationary bike for days one, two, and three or something. Okay. Um, and then the last part of that is stress. So having a concussion is very stressful, especially if you're in high school, especially if you're a high achiever. Um, and so we have to talk about stress in the beginning and set clear expectations. Everyone wants to know when they'll go back to play. Um, and, and we also want to set expectations for the parents on how to help manage the stress. And we do that in... Um, you know, looking at the return to learn piece, giving them academic accommodations to help them be in school, reducing um, the stress that the team might be putting upon them or social pressures, things like that. So we give them that plan. I tell them, go out, here's your plan, come back and see me in a week. When they come back, you know, one of two things has happened. Either one, they're feeling great, in which case, if everything looks good, we start them on their return to play protocol.
2: So would you repeat the impact? I
1: repeat, if if it was abnormal the first time. Okay. mm -hmm. Um, and
2: usually if they're not having any symptoms and the impact is good, you're getting that return to play? If they're
1: completely symptom-free okay, and their impact is normal.
2: Which we know about 80% of people are going to be symptom-free back to normal in about seven days.
1: According to the research. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and then if they're if their bombs, their vestibular or ocular motor screen looks normal, then I will have them start their five-day return to play protocol. So that's five days of progressive physical activity getting them back to playing level. Okay. Um, If they're not symptom-free, so then we start to, then that's when I start to really think about those six clinical profiles and what profiles am I seeing and what do we need to look at?
2: So this is sort of getting into now the treatment. Mm, Right. So so this is, so if the kid, you see the kid in in seven days and they're they're still having, they're not having any symptoms. Mm -hmm. Let's start with that. And their impact score is normal. You're not treating them, but you're going to, Exert them, or are you going to start them on this return to play five day plan?
1: Yeah, so so the five day return to play protocol is best practice in Texas. It's actually law, so they have to go through a five day return to play protocol.
2: So tell me about that though. Like, how is that law? Well,
1: under the UIL, it's UIL law.
2: What? What is UIL?
1: UIL is the oh, you keep asking me (laughs) something interscholastic league. I'm I'm new to Texas. Okay, Uh, it's the governing body for public school sports. Okay, in Texas. So,
2: so they have to go through
1: You're you're a, in the UIL state football championships right new. now. Okay. <laughs> Good.
2: Okay, so so they're not having symptoms, their impact is normal. They tell you that they're doing well, their vestibular ocular screening is normal. You're just going to start them on this 5-day return to play. So what does that look like?
1: Okay, so so mo- you know, this is a very standard kind of generic explanation of it cuz Yep. You can have variations of it. Sure. Um, day one is usually very minimal, 20 minutes walking or stationary bike. Stage two is a little bit more than that, maybe more time or a little bit more intensity. Stage three is when most, and this, the athletic trainers are doing this. Yeah. So stage three is when they're really kind of opening these kids up. They'll have them do some running, some sprinting. We want to you know, incorporate some plyometric movements, some head turning things to make sure they can tolerate that. Stage four is non-contact practice. And then stage five is a full practice okay. with contact. Okay. So they should hit all five of those before they're put back in a game situation. They have to be symptom free. So if they get if they're doing well and then on day four they get a headache, they have to repeat day four the next day. Okay. So it's a it's supposed to be a minimum five day.
2: Okay. And they get to day five, they take part in their practice, they're symptom free, return to play. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Symptom symptom free in your sport. So, so they With a normal so yep impact and so on to you're, get
1: to return to play they have to be symptom free full day in school yep and go through everything else symptom free and then that hits all the metrics
2: okay so one thing we didn't talk about last time but there's obviously a huge variance in, in I I understand that eighty percent are going to be normal within seven days and then twenty percent have a protracted re- re- recovery time right right and there's certain things like dizziness you said was one of these symptoms that we see. Immediately that's going to predict that you might be one of these patients that's going to have a delayed recovery right now that 20 percent is obviously hugely variable I mean I know you were involved in this and, and there's HIPAA you know regulations here that, and we're not going to talk about this, but this is largely public knowledge i'm a, I'm, I'm Canadian I'm a huge hockey fan. Sidney Crosby missed the better part of two seasons right because of concussion symptoms mm-hmm <laughs> There's the he was getting the best concussion
1: day. treatment in the world, I would argue.
2: Well, he was at university. I presume he was, he was at, at the UPMC, University <laughs> uh, University yeah. of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where yeah. you are. You guys are from this whole everything we're talking about started there, right? So he's he's obviously getting all the treatments.
1: So think about this: going back to the risk factors, what you bring to the table is sometimes hard to manage after the concussion. And so, you know, depending on the nature of the injury, if you have a lot of risk factors and you're you're popping up in all of these profiles, you have a vestibular problem, an ocular problem, you're having post-traumatic migraine, you're not sleeping well, that's causing some mood problems. I mean, that's a perfect right. storm. Yeah. Then there's cervical involvement on top of it. I mean, you could you could look at a real mess.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I always think about that example, too, because when you looked at the hit that that gave him his I think it was Victor Hedman, uh... I'm not even sure where he plays anymore, but he used to play for for Tampa. But he hit him behind the boards, and it was sort of a hit from behind. But it was, it was totally benign. You would never have thought there was probably another 200 hits that were at that level or worse than that body check in that game alone.
1: I will also say though, and was that 2012? That was like 2011. Geez, it, it was a while ago. So, yeah. so even since then, the treatment protocols have improved so much. Right. I mean, I mean, really drastically. Yeah. So so everything that we do now, you know, the seeds had been planted there, and we were kind of doing it, but it's really come a long way even since then.
2: Sure. Um, and there's a there's there's the best ho- arguably the best hockey player in the whole world who sits out almost two years with a concussion, or I guess symptoms of a concussion, versus you know someone who might be fine 3 days after getting knocked out on the football field right so there's a huge variance in how this wor- all works out and i guess this is you know this is support to your model and that is that ev- this is a hetero hetero uh, heterogeneous disease who you can't really group every person into one box that hey oh you have a concussion we do this
1: so a really interesting read that just came out was Dale Earnhardt Jr published a book um, nascar
2: oh no way yeah. i haven't seen that
1: Okay, so he, he had two major concussions that were treated at UPMC. Okay. And he had, he his his book is really quick, easy read, very interesting. Um, he had a vestibular problem. Well, imagine as a race car driver having a, a problem right. with, man, you know, space in motion. Um, the worst, the worst combination. I mean, right, nothing worse. So he talks a lot about that and he talks a lot about how that, you know, sensitivity to space and motion in and of itself sparks this anxious reaction and this uh, these avoidance behaviors. And um it's a really interesting read because, you know, you don't think maybe NASCAR you don't you might not think of them as athletes, but they're they're very much athletes and they're very much top of their game and um he he very eloquently explains his experience in that book.
2: Okay. So good good like read last for month it came interested. out. Yeah. yeah. Um okay so we've talked about the one person that comes back and they're they're you know, not having symptoms, they're going to be put on this five day return to play. They have to get through each day, which is a little bit more exertion uh, and they have to be asymptomatic to progress to the next day. And then day five, full practice, maybe some contact and they have to be symptom free. And then they're, you know, cleared to, to return to the field. Right. Let's go back now. This, so the person that's having symptoms now, so Johnny shows up. A week later he's telling you that he's had a headache on and off for the better part of the last seven days maybe he has some dizziness feels anxious having trouble concentrating at school uh, what else
1: so um, what's typical um, dizziness fogginess which is a very ambiguous symptom um, and that's another predictive symptom so at day three post-injury if they have fogginess that's a predictor that it could take longer to recover okay um, sensitivity to light and noise we see a lot of post-traumatic migraine symptoms and so you know listening to those symptoms that's when the VOMS, the screening that I do comes into play because sometimes you know those symptoms could just be migraine and someone who has never had a migraine headache before and has no family history that doesn't mean they can't get post-traumatic migraine so it's important to tease apart what's causing these symptoms so the VOMS is looking at both the vestibular system and ocular motor functioning. And I'm looking for observable signs. So, you know, when I, when I put my hands up and ask them to follow my finger or, or do saccades, for example, are they overshooting or are they undershooting targets? Those are observable things, but it's more, you know, how does this make you feel? There's okay. a subjective component. And if that's abnormal at that point, um, at the seven-day mark, that's typically when I'll refer to Kayla.
2: Okay. So that takes us to Kayla. Kayla is the vestibular physical therapist. Yes. So what next?
0: So that's a loaded question too. Um, So what I'll do is I will start by having an interview of my own with them. My interview probably takes me a good 20, 30 minutes to tease out exactly what I need to do in my evaluation in and of itself. Um, at this point, they've already seen Erin, so I know they have at least seven days of attempting to do those behavioral strategies that she talked about. So what I really hound on is I look at their sleep dysfunction and I look at the activity and modification that they've been doing. Sleep is so important in our realm because if you're not sleeping, what do you usually what usually happens? You wake up with a headache. And in our patients, that headache just it just wrecks their entire day and it affects their Performance at school and it affects their interactions with their friends and their family and that can sometimes lead to mood problems So the sleep part is very important and I always overemphasize that the second piece I look at is obviously the physical activity modifications, you know You can't just tell a kid Well go outside and walk because you'll have one that goes for a five-minute walk and then they come back and they say Oh, I'm fine or they'll ha- you'll have another one who will walk for 45 minutes and go for a five-mile walk, and then they'll have a pounding headache, and they'll come back mad at you.
1: And we've learned that these even these, like, you know, quote-unquote elite high school athletes, if they don't have organized practice, they don't work out. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> they don't know what to do.
2: Yeah.
0: So you have to tell them, I need you to do push-ups, I need you to do sit-ups and crunches, I need you to go for a walk with your dog, because that's a physical exertion. The dog might pull you, you're going to stop, you're going to start. Or sometimes I tell them, no dog, I just want you to walk, but don't walk fast, don't walk like someone's chasing you. You have to give them specific parameters.
2: Okay. So is this part of the, the therapy, this or, is, or is this?
0: This is all part of my interview, because if I don't okay. have the answers to all these questions that I talked about then I'm just really I'm shooting in the dark. Okay. Because it's very easy for me to go in and do like a 10-minute interview and then go into my evaluation and they can lie to me. And if I didn't have the experience that I do and I know what I'm looking for, I would I could come back very easily to Aaron and say, "I don't know why you referred them to me. They're they're symptom-free." But right. so I, I go very in depth with my interview and then I spend like a good 15-20 minutes looking actually looking at their eye movements And I take it a step further than what Aaron does. I yes, I look at the symptoms But I look at were the symptoms occurring while you were doing the eye movements. Did they occur after? How long? Give me um, Give me an intensity on a scale of 0 to 10 Then I look at the quality of their eye movements. You know, she mentioned looking at the saccades. Are they undershooting, overshooting? Are they in a straight line? Um, oftentimes you have a directional preference too. So an athlete will come in and they can do a uh, horizontal saccades fine, but then when you ask them to do vertical saccades or- So
2: tell us what a saccade is because I think a lot of people aren't going aren't gonna to know what this is.
0: Okay. So vertic- uh, So a, saccad- a saccadic movement is a very rapid eye movement from one target to the other, and you have to be accurate. You have to be able to look at one finger and then the other finger and without overshooting aka going past the finger and then coming back to the target or what we look for is undershooting so are you taking several different steps to reach that other finger that you're looking at so that's what we're looking for
2: okay so this is all part of your evaluation Yep. and this is this is just you sort of getting the information you need to try and determine what sort of therapy you're going to implement
0: mm-hmm. is that right yeah so if you take a look at you know if you look at what Erin does for the VOM screen um, I do all of that and I do probably 10 times more so I always tell them you know I'm sorry you you just did the VOMs with her but I'm going to make you feel a little bit worse too because chances are if she found something on the VOMs I'm going to find
1: it in 10 other tests and measures that I'm going to do with and, them as and well s- sometimes I should say I don't find anything on the VOMs but there's something not right and they're giving me this weird symptom and they're just not getting better, I'll still have her look at them because I just do a screen and she can sometimes pull a lot out of that. Okay.
0: And sometimes it's it's um, it's important to note that some of these kids don't understand what we're asking and they don't know how to describe how they feel. Mm-hmm. Like Erin mentioned fogginess. They don't know what fogginess means. So that we have to kind of do more to figure out well, why do you feel a little fuzzy? Why is that vision? Do you feel like you can't read? Is it not clear? Or do you feel like you're slow? Is it that reaction speed? Because those are two different components of the vestibular system.
2: Right, okay. So what are the, break this down for us, what are the areas of physical therapy following concussion?
0: So there's three major trajectories that we can um, that we can have our, pl- our part in after a concussion. We can work on vestibular physical therapy, we can perf- help perform exertion physical therapy, and then we can also play a role in cervical or orthopedic injuries. So, But those are most uh, commonly seen you know, after some sort of whiplash, and that doesn't necessarily happen in everyone. So, um, yes, you do have some cervical involvement, but that's spontaneous recovery as well. That can resolve on its own pretty quickly too.
2: Okay. So let's start with vestibular physical therapy, and you're a vestibular physical therapist correct so you're the perfect person <laughs> to tell us about this hmm so what is that
0: so what I'm looking at is I'm looking at the coordination of your brain with your eye movements and the sensory feedback that you're getting from your legs which helps with your balance it also includes the inner ear there's an apparatus inside your inner ear that helps tell you where we are in space so when we're moving our head and our eyes are still open all, our vestibular system is helping to coordinate all that information.
2: okay So what sort of what sort of exercises or activities are you doing? What does this entail?
0: So um, I always tell people what vestibular therapy is is a it is an exposure recovery model It's habituation. So I take what makes someone symptomatic and I give it back to them in a very controlled environment. So and I do that in small doses and then I increase the dosage until, you reach the point that no matter what I throw at you in my treatment room or what I ask you to do in the real world, you don't become symptomatic because I've prepped and
1: primed your brain and your vestibular system to handle it.
2: Can you give us like an example? Like who would be – what would be a typical –
1: That's such an important point. So we see – here we're just doing sport concussion, but in our previous life we did all concussion, all MTBI. And so.
2: so – So just – the sport concussions maybe like people that were in car accidents or right what, exactly what, what, right. What other, so where do you get a concussion
1: other than sports you can you know slip and fall okay. um, you know assaults things like that okay. so so you have someone that's got a, a you know remote concussion and they had a vestibular problem and it wasn't addressed maybe people start avoiding things so they you these are the people that will stop going to the grocery store and they'll avoid busy places and then they become depressed i mean it's this it's this cycle um, and so for high school kids their first time walking into high school after they've got a concussion that's like sensory overload that's such a provocative environment just in terms of lights people noise you know we want them to go sit there and learn calculus and they can't even take in the environment
2: i get a headache just thinking about it it's that. awful
1: <laughs> And so we this exposure recovery is so important. It's such a hard concept. Parents get very concerned that we're asking these kids to do this. So we're saying we want them to feel these symptoms. They have to feel these symptoms. Okay. It's the only way they're going to get through it. But we don't want them to feel these symptoms for an hour straight. And then I call them vestibular hangovers. I don't know if I should do that <laughs> or not. But, you know, you go they go to this a football game, let's say, and then the whole next day they can't get out of bed that that's too much stimulation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you need to have exposure and then you need to have appropriate recovery time.
2: <clears throat> so I want I want because we talked a little bit th- about exertion in there, but I want to understand what this vestibular physical therapy is. So and I want other people to understand as well. So give us an example of the symptoms or the the patient how they might present and how then you treat it.
0: Okay. So the football game is a perfect example. So take a cheerleader because I have a lot of cheerleaders on my caseload right now what do they do they stunt they tumble and they cheer so they're jumping up and down they're kicking and they're performing they're performers they're performers under bright fluorescent lighting and they're performing in a huge loud screaming environment so there's noises there's lights and there's physical exertion once a cheerleader comes in after concussion she can't cheer like that you know she's sensitive to lighter sounds and she gets dizzy all right so take that girl who's dizzy and sensitive to light and sounds we pull her from her sport we say no tumbling no stunting obviously because that increases your risk of sustaining another concussion so what do we allow her to do well we start small we tell her please go to practice please go sit at practice you can't participate right now but please go sit in the sidelines and don't sit directly in front of your squad sit up in the bleachers a few a few you know like a few feet up so that you aren't looking going back and forth and back and forth you can see the big picture of what your squad is doing
2: okay
0: that's step one a progression to that is okay so you can go to cheer practice but please only go for half an hour because that stimulus is too much for you then the next week i increase it you can go to 45 minutes to an hour all of a sudden she can sit through the entire practice she can watch them p- perform she can per- she can listen to the whistle she can listen to the music and she's fine with all of that then we say okay so maybe let's try going to cheer for a quarter you can go on friday night but you can only cheer for one quarter that's what 15 minutes 15 20 minutes but still no stunting no tumbling once she can handle that we go to a, we go to a entire half, but then I'd say to her, once you hit that halftime, you have to take yourself completely off the track. You need to go somewhere, you need to drink a lot of water, have a snack, and just chill out. Because just like Erin mentioned about the vestibular hangover, your adrenaline is pumping, you're excited, you're happy to be in that environment, but then once you remove yourself, things calm down, then that's when your symptoms might hit you. So I need to know that. That's very important information for me. <clears throat> and so once the cheerleader can handle like a full half, then we say, okay, try the full game. So that's um, that's a pretty reasonable progression for a
1: cheerleader. And during all that, you're also giving them homework, mm-hmm. right, to do at home? Yep. Mm-hmm. So it's, that the part she just explained is like the, I think for them, like the easy fun part. She gives them homework that they have to do at home, eye movement exercises that most people don't really enjoy. Uh, but they're no. very effective. So
2: that is sort of what I was getting at in that when I think about physical therapy, I think about going in, let's say you're doing it for an ACL, you know, you have had an ACL reconstruction in your knee, you're going in, you're doing starting with closed chain, simple extension exercises of your knee to slowly build up the quad. And then you progress through that and you're doing, you know, I don't know what, whatever we want to talk about more exercises to build the muscles in your leg. And you slowly graduate eventually at three months, we let you start running, but no pivoting till about six months or so on. Um, but there's exercises that you do. So that was that was it. You guys are getting into it. But that was sort of like a you're gonna moderate their return to being a cheerleader, but when they come and see you in the office is there actual exercises that you go through with them oh yeah
0: oh yeah there's tons of exercises that we do but you have to understand that that progression that I just took you through that is part of her exercise routine that is part of what I ask her to do I ask her to put herself in those environments now the eye exercises are very very important they take I tell them they take you a a maximum of 10 minutes (laughs) And chances are you're not, you're not practicing. So you take your exercises and do them in the trainer's room. Okay. Um, And then I always preface this by saying, you know, you're going to get symptomatic when I ask you to do these things, but it's important to know that I need your symptoms to stay below a four or five out of 10. They can't rise above that or else that's too much. You're either doing them incorrectly. I gave them to you wrong, or I gave them to you too early, or
1: there's something that else that needs to be tweaked okay so like for example you you brought up on the last episode the convergence insufficiency yeah near point of convergence yeah, yeah. so she'll give exercises to help strengthen near point of convergence right she'll give ex- whatever the weaknesses she gives exercises to but that exposure recovery is a huge piece because what we want to prevent mm-hmm. is avoidant behaviors so we'll have kids come in and, and the mom will say oh um, you know the lights in school are just so bright so we've had them wearing sunglasses No, no, no. We don't want them wearing sunglasses. We don't want them wearing earplugs. We want them exposed to it every day. Okay. Um,
2: So this is different. This is not what we used to do. No. No. And
0: I think this is what sets our program apart is because I see these patients who have been doing just exercises. They go into the vestibular therapist's office and they just do their eye exercises and then that's it. They're done. You know, they do them every day, but they don't... Understand the exposure recovery piece that Aaron and I are so good at really hounding in on because that, like I said, that is part of therapy.
2: Okay. So, how is this different, though, than exertion PT? Let's get on to that.
0: Okay. So, vestibular, I guess I should say, is the vestibular piece is step one. Step two is the exertion piece, which is based upon what I see in vestibular therapy. So, exertion is a gradual return to helping them return to play, helping them return to physical activity based upon your vestibular deficits and vestibular and visual abnormalities.
2: So let's take a step back because I know we mentioned this earlier when you wanted to say this is different than what everyone else is doing.
1: Well, this is different than formal return to play. So when we talk about that five-day return to play protocol, first of all, this is different. This is an intermediate stage. And so, well, in Pittsburgh, this was like just everyone did this. We just did this, you know, and then we moved to, Kayla and I moved to Texas and we realized that it's not, I mean, there's some people doing it, right. But it's, it's actually the fun part, you know, the kids like it, you know, we like it when you get to bring them in. And this is like, so sometimes we'll have someone in vestibular therapy and they look great and we'll say, okay, we're going to go back now to your athletic trainer and do return to play. We, we get this all the time. I got an email today. Kids get to stage two, they're starting to ramp it up a little and they're getting dizzy or they're getting a headache. And the athletic trainers at the school, first of all, have a lot on their plate and they're not specifically trained on, on what to do on that. So they'll send them back to us and say, well, they're still symptomatic, but everything in the exam looks normal. So that's when you know Kayla will take them into a gym or a field or something and actually work them out. And be with them and talk to, I mean, she can talk to better than I can, but like go through with them where are your symptoms coming from. And then how can we structure the exercise program to do that exposure recovery piece?
2: So I guess this is a question that I, I'm sure a lot of parents have. If you are having symptoms, so let's say oh, 10 days, two weeks after your initial concussion event, if you are having a headache or you're going for a run and you're getting a headache or you're getting dizzy or you're becoming nauseous or more foggy or one of these symptoms, if that's happening on exertion, is there any risk to you or risk to doing it? Do you want it? Would you want them to play through this?
1: Well, th- I think you're asking two different things. Like if we're asking, do do we want them to play in a football game with no, those symptoms? No. Th- I mean, I do you want to keep
2: them exercising?
1: Yeah. But I will say this, if there are symptoms, there's a reason for it. And so, you, you have to go to someone who understands how to assess for that. Okay. And the reason might just be that they have some post-traumatic migraine stuff and they're going to have that for six months. Um, but there could be a very subtle vestibular ocular motor problem. So when you think about the act of running, your, your head's kind of going up and down a little bit and your your line of vision is moving up and down. That's a vestibular problem that's going to give you problems when you run. You might not ever notice it any other time. Sure. So So whenever I hear that there's symptoms... I want that person to be evaluated so we can determine why. Okay. And then we can tell them, okay, it's okay to push through it or it's not.
2: What would be some time that you would think it's not okay to
1: push through it? Well, like for example, if this is migraine, if they're triggering migraine. So for some people, physical activity actually prevents the migraine, but some people it'll trigger migraine. So we'd want to give them guidelines as to how to work with it. Okay. So we're never telling people you can't exercise. It's just helping them determine the right way to exercise so that they're not feeling symptomatic.
2: Okay. Got it. And this is a lot different from what we used to do. You know, it was to take it easy for a few weeks.
1: We, so the whole idea now from really from day one is this idea of active recovery and the active recovery in the first week is a very structured, controlled activity. But after that, we are really pushing them to, to feel uncomfortable in order to get back to where they need to be. Okay. And this is all the caveat we'll say is, you know, the one thing I tell, the biggest rule I have for my patients is I don't want them to get a hit in the head. So no activity that's going to put them at risk of re-injury activity is not going to make their concussion worse. Okay. But getting a hit in the head will.
2: Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is something that we have seen. There's always, there's, there used to at least always be in South Africa, where I was actually born and grew up for a while. There was. Always, you would always hear a story of a of a rugby player who played on a Saturday game because generally rugby games are played on Saturday. Would get a concussion, and then he would go and play on Sunday. You would do recovery or you'd go play touch, and he would die during the touch game from getting a hit into the head. And that was like this. I don't know if there's some sort of a mechanism where there's this second shock, second impact syndrome, second impact syndrome, mm-hmm. where your brain is not quite ready for it, mm-hmm. and you put yourself in these situations that involved in this second impact. And that is you know fatal in some circumstances so
1: yeah I mean it's not that common but certainly I mean there's cases in the US too where you'll hear um, you just get you know rapid swelling of the brain and unless they can do a craniotomy right, you're gonna die and so that's why it's so important you know the whole if there's any suspicion of concussion it's not worth it especially when we're talking about high school athletes and younger um, it's just not worth taking the risk um, but You know these are cases where the kids are are re-injured it's re-injury that causes that it's being hit in the head so after they have a concussion until they're healed they're at higher risk of being re-injured it's going to take less force to re-injure them
2: and would you say under that same token if would you say that once they've rehabbed appropriately they're at a baseline risk of sustaining a second concussion
1: that's what we believe, and I honestly will tell my patients sometimes if they've been in vestibular therapy and they've they're looking good, I often encourage them to take it a little bit further. Like, you know, can we make this almost a preventative? Can we get their vestibular and ocular motor systems even stronger than it was before? So, you know, when I, one of the risk factors I ask about is ocular um, abnormalities. So, do you have a history of lazy eye or cross eyes or your parents or just, is there any you know in sure. the immediate family and? Um, if so, when we're doing their exam afterwards, you can usually see it come out, right? You decompensate a little bit after a head injury. So in those cases, well, if we're giving them ocular exercises, let's see if we can take it a little bit further and do a little bit extra rehab.
2: So what are these ocular exercises?
1: Oh, boy. Can we put that into words? It's kind of a visual.
0: <laughs> it is. It's a, it's it's hard for me to explain I'm through. sort of
2: like imagining them looking at a piece of paper with different... Well, kind or of. So Going our offices have checkerboards
1: on the, on the wall <laughs> okay. and grids of letters and numbers. Mm-hmm. And it's,
0: yeah. it's a lot of visual exercises. And then once the athlete has mastered the visual piece while sitting or standing still, then I add the dynamic piece. I have them do it walking forwards and backwards. I have them do it while jogging down a hallway. Um, but I guess if you want, if you want to practice of a very basic vestibular exercise. So hold your thumb out in front of you
1: okay. and keep
0: your eyes on the tip of your thumb. Don't let don't let your eyes fall off your thumb. So what I need you to do is shake your head left and right like you're telling me no while you keep your eyes focused on your thumb. Okay. So this is the bread and butter of vestibular exercises. This is called this is working on your vestibular ocular reflex. Okay. And so what you're supposed to be able to do is keep your eyes focused on your target ak your thumb while your head moves in space
2: got it it's
1: very basic so she she has them go pretty fast yeah. right for a while
2: and you're saying that this is trainable so this you is, can oh, yeah. improve is, these syst- symptoms to maybe pre- is it would you say that then you know i don't know if i'm jumping ahead here but would you say that you can maybe prevent future concussions
1: well, that's what I would love to find out. <laughs> right. So, so you know, you talk when we talk about research. These are the things that we're going to be looking at in um, our program here in Frisco. Is you know, what are we doing in clinic? How can we make this better? And how can we use this maybe as injury prevention?
2: Yeah, because I mean, that's where medicine's going, right? Like even the ACL. I know we talked about that a little bit earlier, but it's. It's it's not how do you treat ACL injuries anymore, it's how do you prevent them. Mm-hmm. And that's identifying the patients that are at risk of developing a knee injury just based on their biomechanics, how they land, you know, neurocognitive functions around the knee and so on, and then trying to identify those patients, put them in a program that compensates for this and, and you know, strengthens the appropriate muscles to make them less at risk to ultimately try and prevent the ACL from tearing in the first place.
1: There's, there's a number of professional baseball teams and I think some hockey players that are doing ocular training now. so And they're doing it as a sports performance piece, right? Can you, per, can you yeah. improve your performance with ocular training? But, you know, ocular training can improve your reaction time. And, and I think taking that a step further... Especially in these cases, so, you know, we do baseline testing. When We do baseline testing on teams. In Frisco, we're just doing the – high school kids are just getting the impact test. But when we do college teams or professional teams, we're also doing baseline bombs on them. And what you'll find sometimes, let's say you have a professional football team, well, they're not all going to look normal at baseline. There's going to be things that, you know, they've had from previous injuries or just risk factors that they bring to the table. Those are the cases that I find really interesting. If we can get that vestibular ocular baseline on them, you know, and then we can track and see how are they getting injured and what can we do in rehab to to make them less prone to that. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot that can be done so in that area. This is
2: so interesting. If this you, is just
1: the beginning of it.
2: Totally. Yeah. I, I sort of, when you guys were coming, coming in the other day and uh, to this talk, I... I was, I was thinking to myself, it's almost like we know so little about this right now. We might think that we have made, you know, big improvements over the last few years. But if you were to listen to this podcast in 50 years from now and say, oh, my goodness, like, look at how little they knew. If you just, if you just look at that heart attack, for instance, like if you were in 19, the 1950s and you had a heart attack, there was no blood biomarker. To test right. for a, for whether or not you've CKMB or whether or not you've now it's a blood test right you get a little bit of blood drawn and they can tell you yep you've had a heart attack or you've signed on ECG that right. yes you've had a heart attack and this is now how we treat you and we've got a whole algorithm you know I'm sure there's some sort of a blood test that you can some sort of a biomarker of the cells the the cells in different areas of your brain release that go into your systemic circulation that you could draw blood and say Hey, yeah, you've had a concussion because of this biomarker.
1: I think we'll have that in in our career span for sure.
2: It's gotta be. It's gotta be there. I mean, they're working on it. it They're
1: they're definitely working on it, but
2: yeah. So, and then maybe taking it even a step further, saying, let's identify the kids that have these, you know, these risk factors that are going to make them. These are the these are the players on the field. Maybe you can go even further. These are the players in these positions on the field that are at a certain percentage higher rate of developing a concussion. Therefore, we need to have preseason training for all of them where they work on their vestibular ocular systems to maybe decrease their risk somehow of or they get trained in these systems. You're telling me that it actually can be somewhat in your experience be preventable. So. Let's put them through training to try and prevent them from getting a concussion in the first place. Right. Because I, I always say the best the best treatment is, is preventing this in the first place, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think there's going to be a lot that comes out in the next five years or so as, as this gets out. But, you know, interestingly, and we didn't realize that until we moved to Texas... This is still very much in its infancy. You know, um, we've been doing it for so long that to us it's just second nature, but really getting the word out. And, and when I say that we get these referrals with this, you know, outdated verbiage in the, in the notes, it's like we just need to get out there and educate more. You know, that's why um, we do things like this podcast and we're, we're trying to talk to physicians. We set meetings with groups around town just to, to get the word out that things really have changed and there's so much we can do for these kids.
2: Let's just talk a little bit about the return to play protocol and then also this concept of return to learn. So what is, what are those both?
1: So return to play. So we we talked about the five stage protocol and it's really, you know, there's international consensus statements that meet every, the groups meet about every four years and that's what we base our international return to play criteria on. So generally we're looking for symptom free at rest, symptom free with physical activity, which is uh, documented by that protocol and then um, normal neurocognitive test status. Um, So so the protocol is is pretty generalized. There are specific protocols for different sports that you can do. Um, I'm part of the Frisco ISD concussion oversight team. So in Texas, the UIL mandates, they all have these concussion oversight teams. So all the Frisco ISD kids get the same return to play protocol. Middle school is a little bit different, um, but it's pretty generalized. The return to learn piece is a really important component that for years, you know, everyone just wants to talk about return to play, but we're talking about student athletes. So the first part of that is they have to get back to school. And that can be incredibly difficult, especially if these are high performing students, which a lot of them are. Um, so that's one of the the nice things about having a neuropsychologist in the, in the group is that, you know, my bread and butter is neurocognitive functioning that's what i went to school for um so i'm able to put together individualized learning plans based on the kids symptoms their ability to tolerate the environment their vestibular presentation i can give each of them different accommodations that are going to allow them to be in school maybe have a little bit of a reduced cognitive load um, but actually be in school work through that vestibular stuff and not get behind and not be out of school for weeks at a time
2: okay what's the what's the What's the what's the hardest part in all of this?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I honestly, I mean, I don't know if this is the hardest part, but popular media has destroyed us. Yeah. <laughs> they make our lives really difficult.
0: Yeah. Sure. Especially um, especially when you get in these NFL players and they you know, they're they, they're out for a game and then next Sunday they're back.
1: Yeah, we yeah. Hit, there's two there's two, you know, opposite ends to the spectrum. They're the there are the families that just want their kids to play. And we're we have a situation we're dealing with right now, or there's uh you know the families that don't want their kids to ever play, right? And so we're trying to balance that. I mean, I so firmly believe in in the benefit of team sports, and so trying to explain that to them while their kid is laying in the table, you know, crying because they have an eight out of ten headache and they can't go to school, and it's it's a lot to to balance. But and, I, then, I, yeah.
0: and then I think uh, at least for me, it's changing perspective. And showing other, even other healthcare professionals that this is treatable.
2: Right. Yes. That's a huge thing, right? Yes. Because this is not something that is typically understood as a treatable disease. Right. It's just sort of, oh, your brain needs to, it's a just rehabilitative It's a rehabilitative injury, for sure. Right? And that's what you guys are doing. Yep. Awesome. What about research? Are you guys doing anything? What what what's what's so what's the on the agenda right now? Stages
1: of building this um, research program. So we're starting a concussion registry, um, and we have a research team that we're putting together. But you know, the things that we talked about, um, you know, understanding how we can improve what we're doing in clinic to improve outcomes. What can we do that's going to, um, you know, help these kids to be stronger and um, less prone to injury when they get back out there. Um personally, I you know i'm I'm very interested in the psychological sequelae of injury. So what does this mean? Um, you know, some of these kids go back to play and they're scared and um, what does that mean for their for their return?
2: Million dollar question you're a you're a mother. I am. How many kids? two? Boys or girls? One of each? One of each.
0: One of each. I'll be a mother in February. Does <laughs> that count?
2: That counts big time. <laughs> do you know, boy or girl? I'm having a boy. You're having a boy. Mm-hmm. Is he, are you going to allow him to play American football?
0: Um, my husband would say
1: only for the Eagles. Only for the <laughs> Eagles. Oh <boy. laughs> Aaron? Okay, so everyone asked me that question. My answer is always this I let my daughter play soccer.
2: Okay. She's so a that, senior in high school. And that you're saying that that's a big risk factor for a concussion? Well,
1: if I mm-hmm. let her play soccer, I have to let her play football. I have to let, let him, him play, play football. football.
2: Mm-hmm. So your answer is yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. There's so much benefit to team sports mm-hmm. So you, I'm you're still afraid... saying
2: Don't hold them out because of all of this concussion talk
1: No, I'm more afraid of an ACL tear
2: <laughs> Really? Oh yeah See, yeah. I, would, I, I don't know what I would say ACL versus concussion, I think they're both bad but
1: uh, Here's the thing, we treat it every day yeah. and, and we understand it so well That it's not it's it not a scary thing yeah, to me It doesn't Mm-mm. scare you guys Mm-mm.
2: Well that's that's refreshing to hear I would say
1: my son's pretty small though, so he might have to be a kicker. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's not a, He doesn't have a huge risk of a concussion. He's a kicker. <laughs> Just kick the ball and get out of the way. Um, good. So finally, I guess this applies to mainly people local here. But how do they come? How does someone come and see you? Or someone someone's kid gets concussed. Mm-hmm. What can they do to see you guys?
1: Um, well, I can give you our clinic phone number. Yeah, which is four six nine eight hundred five two seven zero. I shouldn't say this for patients, but I'm very active on Twitter. So I'm at Dr. Aaron Reynolds, and I have a lot of people send me messages through Twitter. And if it's in the case of someone's injured, I just kind of direct them to the clinic. Okay. Um, but that's an easy way to to get us. And then there's the mystarhealth.com website, which goes right to our clinic.
2: And you guys are just down the road here uh, on Warren Parkway at the Star, or at the which Star. is the mm-hmm. Dallas Cowboys headquarters. Yep. Okay, good. So just contact there. Yeah. Follow Aaron on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it
1: yeah mm-hmm. that's it
2: anything else you want to tell us
1: i don't think so i think we covered it yeah. my Up hashtags there. are always concussion is treatable and active recovery is key <laughs> so those are the
2: good there you have it good well thanks for doing this you guys it's been uh, fantastic and very uh refreshing to hear all this new stuff that you guys are working on so um thanks so much
1: awesome thanks Thank for you. having us
0: Thank you for listening to the Sports Medicine Podcast. If you'd like to stay updated on future podcast episodes, please follow us on Instagram at the Sports Medicine Podcast. Like and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. A special thanks to our sponsors, Star Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. This episode was edited by me, Victoria Wickham, and produced by Josh Jones. See you next time on the Sports Medicine Podcast.